The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Welcome to the Blu-ray-powered 17th AV Podcast. Coming up, we've got the latest AV news. We look at A Nightmare on Elm Street, Region 1 DVD with DTS ES and Dolby EX soundtracks and Fifth Element on Blu-ray. We review Open Season for the Xbox 360 and Kingdom Hearts for the PS2. And we have a play with the Sony Ericsson W850i phone and the Blu-ray-enabled Sony Veo AR111X laptop. This week's, this week's Audio-Visual News. In the news this time, four new receivers from Denon, a new HD-ready home cinema projector from Epson, and a new speaker system with wireless surrounds from KEF. Heading out our hardware news this week is the launch by Denon of no less than four brand new AV receivers. Kicking things off is a new entry-level model, the AVR1507, which can be yours for a mere £250. Despite its lowly price, this is a 7.1 channel model, offering, amongst other things, 7 times 110 watts of raw power, a 32-bit floating-point DSP, full 96kHz processing, a 0 to 200 millisecond audio display adjustment, three component video inputs, and even an eight channel input for future sound formats. Denon's next new model is the AVR1707, a 300 pound model which adds to the mix such goodies as front speaker biamping and digital component video conversion. It also sports seven independent power supplies versus the 1507's six. Meanwhile, the £400 AVR1907 ups the power per channel to 120 watts and adds a two-line dot matrix display, on-screen displays for all functions, an aluminum front panel, aluminum control knobs, a digital output and 7.1 channel pre-outs. Finally, there's the £600 AVR2307, a far larger, even more solidly built effort delivering 135 watt per channel output a 1080p capable HD-ready HDMI repeater with 2-in, out-out switching and HDMI video conversion from all sources. It's worth adding too that all four of these receivers boast two new features that look set to become Denon standards, namely a completely automatic setup system and full iPod integration options. Next to catch our eye this week is a new HD-ready home cinema projector from Epson. As with all Epson's AV projectors to date, the EMP TW700 uses 3LCD technology, which in this instance delivers an HD native pixel count of 1280x720, a high maximum brightness output of 1600 ANSI lumens, and a remarkable claim contrast ratio of 10,000 to 1. As usual with LCD projectors, this extreme contrast ratio is down to the TW700's use of an auto iris system where the projector automatically adjusts the amount of light let through the lens depending on how light or dark it judges the picture content to be. You thus can't enjoy the projector's maximum contrast and maximum brightness at the same time, but this is hardly unusual by projection standards. And in any case, we've seen similar auto iris systems on other LCD projectors deliver impressive results, 
so let's hope Epson's efforts are similarly successful. The projector also boasts an unusually flexible 2.1x zoom, making it able to suit a wider than normal range of room sizes, while the lens itself contains no less than 14 sub-lenses to reduce colour flare. Connections include the HDMI and component options required by the AV World's HD Ready specification, and the projector is due to launch this month for the very reasonable £1,300. Finally this week, we come to the latest attempt to do away with wires to your rear speakers. The latest manufacturer to have a go at this thorny cabling issue is KEF, with its Home Theatre 5000 speaker series. The rears for this new system can receive their information via 2.4 gig Wi-Fi, an idea that's not completely new in itself, but one which KEF claims to have taken to another level. How? Well, they've introduced their own proprietary enhanced error correction system and a brand new adaptive frequency hopping approach for detecting and avoiding potential sources of interference. The result could turn out to be the first affordable wireless audio system robust enough to work cleanly with genuinely hi-fi quality speakers. The HT5000 system is currently expected to hit stores early next year, with the main system costing around £1,500, and the wireless transmitter element setting you back £350. From AV Play, it's this week's DVD and HD news and reviews. Welcome to this week's DVD news and reviews. This week we review Nightmare on Elm Street, Region 1, and Fifth Element on Blu-ray. But first, it's the DVD news. Hi, Seth. Hi there, Phil. Well, first off, we have Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, which is coming out on DVD and Blu-ray this December. Um, fans of that really unfunny comedian Will Ferrell should lap this stuff up. But if it's anything like Anchorman, I'll be avoiding it like the plague. Well, I've got to disagree with you there. I absolutely loved Anchorman. absolutely loved um, Old School. Really looking forward to this. I've heard some really good things about it. And basically, you know, you can't go wrong with Will Ferrell and my favourite American actor of the last ten years, John C. Riley. Well, I'll give you the credit where credit's due on John C. Riley, who's generally really great in anything. But like I say, Will Ferrell, not funny at all. Anchorman, Bewitched, Old School, Yawn. So coming out December 12th, this one's going to have a 240 to 1 anamorphic transfer and English Dolby Digital 5.1. And the special features, they also look quite good. A retrospective 25 years later commentary track, which, um, you know, if it goes on along the lines of old school and the extras on Anchorman, it's going to be very funny. So I'm looking forward to that one. Well, just keep in mind that on DVD you'll have the option for a rated and an unrated version, but if you're going for the Blu-ray version, you'll only get the unrated. And big Region 2 DVD news this week is that My Super Ex-Girlfriend comes out on the 4th of December. I didn't know you had a girlfriend to start with, Phil. Uh, let's not go there, but Uma Thurman, she stars as the gorgeous, fiery superheroine G-Girl. Uh, does that mean she wears G-strings? Who knows? And uh, the god-awful Luke Wilson. Well, I'm going to be actually looking forward to that one. Um, I don't like Luke Wilson. I don't have a problem with Uma Thurman, but it's got Eddie Izzard in it, who's the villain of the piece. So that's going to be my kind of sense of humour. And the big thing with this disc as well, it actually arrives two weeks before the Region 1 release. So um, another big thumbs up there for Region 2. And it's also got more extras than the Region 1 edition, apparently. So there's a bigger incentive to pick this up on the Region 2 format. And Seth, what about Reservoir Dogs? It's due its 15th anniversary edition. 
And I have to say, it was one of my favourite movies from the early 90s. Um, I smell a cash-in, I have to say. I don't have a problem with Reservoir Dogs. I prefer Pulp Fiction. I think that most people who watch um, Quentin Tarantino's movie either have a love-hate relationship with either Pulp Fiction being their favourite or Dogs being their favourite. And Dogs has had some wonderful parodies. There's been a scene in Coupling, for example, where they play Reservoir Dogs um, at the funeral from season one. However, it does smell totally of a cash-in. We only had, um, was it the Mr. Pink, Mr. Brown versions about a year or so ago. So I'm, I'm not sure why we have to endure that, other than it's tied in possibly with the game. Yeah, and looking at the special features, going through that, there's, there's not a lot there that's new. Yeah, which, like I said, it, it just smells like a cash-in to me. But if you haven't picked it up already, it's worth picking it up anyway. And another big Region 2 disc is Stormbreaker on its way from Entertainment and Video on the 13th of November. Now, I haven't heard anything about this film, but it seems to be getting um, rave reviews. Yeah, I don't understand it. It's basically Harry Potter as a spy, for want of a better description. You know, instead of it being James Bond gadgets, etc., we have a little spotty kid with gadgets, etc. Um, the only thing that I can think of positive about this movie, from my point of view, Mickey Rourke and Alicia Silverstone. Going back to Region 1 again for a second, we have Pulse coming out on DVD on December the 5th. This is a remake of the Japanese horror movie and stars Kristen Bell from Veronica Mars, I believe. Um, it's available in rated and unrated editions, but the uh, critics have mauled it, basically. Which is a shame, because um, I recently saw the trailer for this, and I quite like the premise, you know, high-speed data transfers, wideband Wi-Fi, and what if the undead could uh, channel their energy into that? I thought it was, you know, uh, something a little bit more original. Well, there's nothing wrong with original, but, as I said, it's a remake of an old Japanese movie from, I think, 2002-2003, called uh, Pulse or Cairo. The only hiccup is, is the trailer used some of the footage from the original Japanese movie and promises a lot more than the content in the movie. But you never know, the unrated edition may make up for this. So the DVD comes out 5th of December and the extras on that audio commentary, three featurettes and deleted scenes. Yep, pretty much standard fare for most DVDs these days. And to wrap things up this week, some big news from Sony regarding Blu-ray. Now, we've had a lot of talk recently, and there's more talk coming our way from Sony who say that they are going to release the first 50 gigabyte Julia Blu-ray discs, and they will be exciting titles. <laughs> yep, you're right. We're going to have Adam Sandler's Click as the first title. Then we will have Black Hawk Down, which will be the best of, the, of a bad bunch. And the third one, Talladega Nights. Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Now it's all well and good bringing out 50 gigabyte discs, but what the hang are they going to put on them? Well, they reckon that they're going to actually put all the extras on things like Click and uh, Ricky Bobby in high def, so we'll actually have a complete high def title. And then when they they brag about this on one of them, them and then say, and then we've got these two extra featurettes, but they're not going to be in high def. Yeah. Well, I think it's just a case of wait and see, isn't it? Because all we've had so far from Sony is talk and very little substance. I have to agree with you. And the worst part is, is for people who have adopted early, or the, and I mean really early, in terms of having the desktop or laptop with the Blu-ray drives fitted, won't be able to play these. They will only handle single layers. 
So, staying with the Blu-ray theme brings us on to our first DVD review of the week. And it's not actually a DVD review, it's a Blu-ray disc. <laughs> You're right, Phil. It's um, a Blu-ray disc and it's The Fifth Element, one of my favourite movies from um, Luc Besson. Yeah, I've got to agree with you there, Seth. Absolutely love this movie, Fifth Element, Bruce Willis bit of action adventure in space and um you know the fifth element isn't bad looking as well you can't mm. complain yeah i was gonna say mia Jovovich is rather yummy in this movie but she's rather yummy in most movies you know take resident evil or ultraviolet for that matter the thing with this particular movie is it's very stylish you know from the aliens the the costumes um the, the cities where the taxis are going at the beginning and so on and so forth very bright very vivid um, very much a visual medium. I do remember seeing this in Edinburgh. Totally enjoyed it, and it's fast become one of my favourite movies from a demo point of view because of the image and from the soundtrack, um, as well as just being great fun for a couple of hours. Yeah, anybody that's been into this hobby for any length of time, this is one of the demo discs, and certainly the super bit version um, from a couple of years back was absolutely pristine. Unfortunately, the Region 2 release, um, because of the way the studios work these days, the Region 2 release, the print used there was goddamn awful, wasn't it? It was absolutely abysmal. You could see so much ghosting. It was very um, blurred. The only thing that the Region 2 version had going for it was it had a full bitrate uh, DTS track. But we're talking about the Blu-ray version, so the big thing is, is how does it compare? From one point of view, it's brilliant. It's very sharp. Um, it's very clear, crisp. The colours are vivid. Um, there's nothing wrong. However, I have an issue with the actual print that they used. You can still see dust specks. Now, I actually would say that this is a worse print than the, it's either a a worse print than they used for the Superbit edition, or because of the high-def format, it shows more up, and I wouldn't want to say which one I'd pick out of the two. Having said that, it is the best-looking I've seen the uh, Fifth Element for quite some time. So what kind of score will you give this one then, Seth? Well, like I say, I do like the movie, and it is the best that you'll actually see the Fifth Element for some time. Bearing in mind that the audio track is not the best in terms of how I could hear it, yet the image is very sharp and I do love the movie I will give the disc a 7 out of 10 and moving on to DVD we're getting close to Halloween and of course we will be doing a Halloween special in the next couple of weeks but I understand New Line have given us another clean crisp clear look at Freddy indeed Phil with um, New Line having brought out the two disc edition of the original Nightmare on Elm Street as an Infinity film version fans of this movie and I am a huge one this would be my favourite horror movie of all time are going to love this edition now the reason that people love this particular edition is not only do we have a Dolby Digital EX mix we also have a DTS 6.1 ES mix and while most of these soundtracks when they change them from mono or stereo to a full blown surround can sound incredibly gimmicky I actually had my reservations as well, but that was soon dispersed after about five minutes when the engulfing atmosphere of the movie was really brought into its own on the DTS track. Now, for those who don't know, the Infinity Film version is equivalent of the old VH1 pop-up videos to a degree, where it will show little facts about the movie. Now, what's quite good on this one is it takes that a step further with uh, a very similar 
white rabbit type feature from the matrix where it will pop up with one or more facts and allow you to press the enter button to go to a commentary regarding various things such as how did Johnny Depp get cast in the part how what's Wes Craven's background etc that's all on the first disc and then on the second disc you have a lot of extras relating to the evolution of horror and Helm Street in particular and so on and so forth so a really good DVD package by New Line for their very first movie and don't forget without Elm Street you wouldn't have movies such as Lord of the Rings So really Seth what we're talking about here is double dipping so is it worth buying this again? Um, It's not so much an emphatic yeah it's an emphatic hell yeah the quality of the transfer, the the audio soundtrack, all the extras are new from uh, the, the original released box set that came out many, many moons ago on DVD. You're not going to get the DTS track anywhere else. You're not going to get the Infinity Film version anywhere else. And like I say, all the other extras on disc two, first time here, it is well, well worth the money if you love Elm Street. So on the body count scale, Seth, uh, how does that one score? Well, in terms of anything else, like I said, it's my favourite horror. It is an impeccable package with an excellent transfer, excellent extras, excellent surround soundtrack. 9 out of 10, without a doubt. Thanks very much, Seth. And that's your DVD news and reviews for this week. The AV Podcast Gaming News with Ian Collin and Seth Gecko. Hi, I'm Ian Collin. And I'm Seth Gecko. And this is this week's Gaming News and Reviews. Okay, main news of the week, well news, it's more like coverage of an award ceremony. The BAFTA, or the British Academy of Video Game Awards, were held during the week. few good winners, a couple of um, possibly slightly depressed losers going on. Main award, winner of the best game, Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter. Don't know what you think about that. I think it's awful. <laughs> it's basically a really bad game. Um, I'm, you can tell that I'm a fan, can't you? I, yeah. I, I got it on the 360, and I have to be honest, I thought it was incredibly overrated and I think I spent it up for about a total of an hour in length and it's been resigned to the where are they now file yeah it does seem to come into a list of um, games that were kind of okay there don't seem to be that many big smash hit games in the list this year was it the other nominees the ones that missed out Guitar Hero fair enough it's a classic game but not exactly a I don't know an Oscar contender in terms of BAFTAs Dr. Kawashima's Brain Training Black Lego Star Wars The Trilogy I don't know if you could have a trilogy going for the best game, I don't know. And Hitman lost out as well. They're not exactly the biggest and best, as, well, in their list, they're the biggest and best games around. But I think amongst those, Ghost Recon, not a bad winner. Uh, like I say, it depends on your viewpoint. I mean, the problem with most of the 360 games, uh, Ghost Recon is notorious being one, um, Fight Night Round 3, DOA 4, they are very much a love-hate game, effectively. Um, I hate Ghost Recon. I think it is really overrated, really boring. Um, awful control mechanism. I didn't like it on the PC either. Some people think it's the best thing since sliced bread. Some people like DOA4. Other people think that it's incredibly uh, tedious. Well, you know. Well, what... no, if you think like that, then you'll probably be quite glad that out of the eight nominations it got, it only won two. So it was obviously officially rubbish in six of the categories that it was entered for. I like so that. It's... A game being officially rubbish. <laughs> Oh no! Well, well, this is again harsh. Not officially rubbish, but the one that just in the Craig David equivalent of BAFTA people or BAFTA nominees winning nothing. We love Katamari. Six nominations, no awards. Got to feel slightly sorry for it. Uh, but at the end of the end of the day, the BAFTAs are well. It's really weird. BAFTAs is film, and it should be BAFTAs. Um, yeah. 
basically, as far as I'm concerned, it's like you know a lot of movies. A lot of people, when they see the Oscar nominations, are going, "Why did that get voted? Um, and, and why didn't this get voted? Uh, no names, no jewel number. Brokeback Mountain." Um, <laughs> and, and it's very much whatever people like. Um, and as I said, you know. The brain games on the DS, huge title. It's one of the most popular ones. People who play it love it. It gets overlooked for an award. Yeah, but they're laughing all the way at the bank because people are buying it. Yeah, I'm sure they'll still get by without a little bit of acclaim. I'm sure they will. Okay, about a weekend ago, Guild Wars Nightfall, one of my favourite games, um, had a big preview weekend. And they actually announced huge record-breaking numbers for the event. Approximately half a million fans played in total for more than four million hours over that weekend. Which just goes to prove that free gaming is obviously alive and kicking on the net. I don't know, there was a lot of people who just had nothing else to do that weekend. I don't know, that's an extraordinary amount of people. Well, the big thing with Guild Wars over um, things like World of Warcraft is it is free. You buy the game and that's it. No monthly fees and no nothing. They do keep on tweaking the game. We get the bug fixes just like um, World of Warcraft, etc. Um, the only difference is, is we get more regular expansions. Nightfall is the second expansion, the third game so far. A lot of flack was issued at the second game, which was Factions, because it was too short and there were other elements that people didn't like about it and they've been tweaking it along the way. It just shows that they're really getting behind the title and trying to refine it. The free bit as well, that, that would swing it for me as well. Well, that's that's the that's the thing. I mean, you pay your RRP of twenty nine ninety nine or whatever for for the actual edition of the game. Um, the bug fixes, the tweaks, the extra bits that are going on there, all free. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to pay a monthly fee either. You know, half a million fans, more than four million hours. That's a lot of people in a in in a weekend. Okay, one other thing that I've been doing this week. I've actually been doing a little bit of research myself into uh, a lot of research that other people have been, been putting together. A um, few reports come out this week pretty much pointing to video games as being something that's good for you, which is a big in-your-face to the Daily Mail and the likes who have always been criticising video games as being the Antichrist, the second coming of the devil and things like that. Um, and it's, it's working for two age groups, which is I find quite interesting. There's one is the obvious schools thing, get games into schools, which I'm sure kids will obviously be delighted to have. Be like, yeah, come on, let's have double Halo this week. Oh, it's going to be a nightmare. Followed by a six-hour solid on Championship Manager. You would not have worry about homework, would you? Homework I'm just tonight. thinking of six hours on Championship Manager and there'd be the teen suicide rate would be through the roof. <laughs> if you could walk into school the next day, it'd be great. Oh, awesome homework last night. I managed to buy a player for £20,000 for a non-league title. Turn him into eight stars every single game. He's awesome. Bragging rights in the playground will be eight. Should be swapping it like cola cubes. Yeah, they'll be getting bored with the uh, spoon-fed under you know 16 certificate games, and they'll be wanting their GTA so they can bust a cap as opposed to bust a groove, I suppose. Yeah, it does seem to be. It's like, I mean, EA were one of the people behind the report, which, funnily enough, tends to push games such as The Sims as being sort of one of the learning tools that people can get in there and learn a lot about you know, strategic thinking skills, that kind of thing, planning it, planning ahead. I don't know how enthused kids are going to be about being forced to play The Sims at school, I don't know. Mind you, compared to some of the other subjects, uh, do you want six hours of history or a couple of hours playing The Sims? Let me think. Rock and a hard place. Rock and a hard place. Yeah. But one other thing, well, the other age scale, the other scale of things, is um, it's even good. It's 
possibly even better for the over 50s, according to a report from an American company. Kevin uh, said, seriously, they <laughs> they did a, an online survey, um, and there's about over, over a thousand over 50 year old gamers came on and it's like, yep, yeah, no, we play video games, we'll take part in this survey. But admittedly, when I say video games, it's kind of, you know, they're probably more into like puzzle games and that kind of thing. Or, or The but, Sims again. Do they have virtual Zimmer frames, is the question. <laughs> Possibly. It probably does make them bitter that all the people on The Sims are younger than them, so they can't really get into it. But, um, <laughs> they probably talk to the screen. I fought a war for you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, they just aged the characters intentionally. Okay, staying on the uh, theme of fifty-year-olds uh, and people who have no lives, there is a second life game, as everybody knows, on the internet. Um, the idea of it is obviously to have a second life in a cyber sense, as opposed to a real one. Although, if you're playing that to any degree, you probably haven't got a life to start with. Anyway, a seminar took place, and a guy called Kaimakulis developed, and I, I, I lie to you not, a teledildonic device. Oh, hey, you've got to break that down in words. Telly Dildonic. Yeah. I'm, I I really wish I could put it in any other way, but that is how it's been described, which okay. is a device that you can plug into, I assume via USB, so that long-distance long lovers, in quote quotes, can um, play together. I, right. I really have no response to that. We're not talking World of Warcraft here either, are we? No, we are talking Second Life, which is effect at which... The idea was to sort of, you know, have real estate and you know do whatever you wanted in a second life, and it became basically the the biggest Soho known to man. It is purely for people who want to go on there and get their proverbial rocks off. So yes, this guy's developed devices that you can actually plug in and um, stimulate the other person at the other end of the internet connection. <laughs> This is like real Quicker. hardware then going on, I suppose. Um, that is one way of wording it, yes. Well, you'd rather have the hardware than the software, I'm guessing. All I, all I can hope is that it, obviously people who use that are, uh, you know, keeping a well from away, well away from the mains, and I hope that the USB can actually power it. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be sitting in water wearing Wally boots, would you? Could you imagine if that actually got it got to the point where someone forgot about the device and then started playing something serious like World of Warcraft, and for every hit? It actually vibrated. It's just, just a horrible thought. Oh, well, I don't know. People might love it. Just walk into a battlefield with it strapped around their waist and just bring it on. Yeah. It'd be messy. It, I, massive is probably the wrong word to use in that case. It's bizarre. Well, it just goes to show there's a market out there for something for everybody. Only in America is all I can say. <laughs> How those words can finish any sentence. It's a, I just saw the world explode. <laughs> Only in America. Anyway, moving on from human interfaces under Windows to... Very quickly. Very, very quickly. To um, games. Have you been playing anything exciting this week? <laughs> Not exciting enough to need a Teletildonic device. Um, but what I have been playing, it's in stark contrast, I've been playing a kid's game. Not purely for my own benefit, but um, I've been taking a look anyway out of curiosity. It's a game called Open Season, based on the upcoming cartoon. I think it's a Pixar cartoon, I'm not sure. It's another one of those cutesy kind of little things. You know, it's like a bit like Shrek. It's got Bear, a main character, and this has got a little deer as a sidekick. I want to be a donkey kind of character. And it's just lots of jolly japes in the forest kind of thing. You know, just cutesy little kid stuff. Yeah, kind of a platform or kind of walk about and do adventure type things? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much scripted walk about. Here's a move to point B, pick up five little flowery things in between. 
you know, it's it's cute, it's simple stuff. Uh, you know, I not, wouldn't say it's my kind of game. Maybe it's a nice little Christmas gift, might be okay. Decent little rental for the afternoon, perhaps, for the kids, but... Well, you know, they have to bring out things for the kids on these formats so that they can want them at Christmas. Especially seeing as there's no Sony PlayStation 3 to get. Yeah, anyway, it's speaking funny, it's of a Sony cartoon. What are <laughs> anyway, speaking of PlayStations, I've been playing Kingdom Hearts 2 on the PlayStation 2. The sequel to the imaginatively titled Kingdom Hearts. Basically, it's Final Fantasy meets Disney cartoons. Now, it sounds a bit bizarre when the first one came out, look one minute you're going to be a character that looks like they've fallen out of Final Fantasy X and the next minute you're walking along with Donald and Goofy. Um, but basically this is more of the same. To reveal too much of the plot would be a shame because it's it, it does follow on directly from the first one. Okay, I haven't played the first one, how does that finish off? I, 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 no, I'm not going to tell you the end um, because it would ru it'd ruin the game if you haven't played the first one and for those who might still be playing the first one it'd be no different for me to turn around and saying actually Darth is Luke's father <gasps> I know no. or there is no Santa Claus oh there is or Phil is really attractive oh no, you're right on that one I know <laughs> anyway basically as I say it's an adventure with Final Fantasy characters or Final Fantasy oriented characters I should really say um, and the Disney crew. Now the first one you there was uh, Nightmare Before Christmas like I say Donald, Goofy, Mickey, the usual thing. In this one uh, I have to be honest it's it takes you nearly three hours of playing before you actually get to, to join the party with uh, Donald and Goofy but once you get there the, the Disney thing really kicks in much more diverse characters that they're going to have this time. You're going to meet uh, Johnny Depp's character from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and believe it or not, and I don't know how this works because I haven't got that far into the game. Tron is in there. Really? Yeah, I on bikes. It. I would assume that it involves the bikes, or at least hopefully the disc game. Oh man, that's that's at least worth a rental just to see the bikes from Tron once again. Well, like I say, to get there, it will take you some time. It took three hours of playing just to get to team up with uh, the Disney characters. So, a bit of an epic. What do you score your uh, open season, then? Out of ten, I could give it four or five tops, I'd have thought. It's something that, I mean, you can finish it in five, six hours, so I can't really give it any more than that. Maybe we'll give it a four. Well, I'm going to give Kingdom Hearts 2 an 8 out of 10. I really dig the Final Fantasy games, uh, even though this has got the kiddie angle and is reasonably easy, even though you can pick your difficulty. I picked the middle one, because obviously you don't know how hard it really is going to be. I always um, picked the middle difficulty. <laughs> indeed. Um, there, I would say there's going to be at least 40, 50 hours gameplay in there, and if you're a huge Disney fan or you're a huge uh, mark for the Final Fantasy games, you're going to really dig it. Okay, so that pretty much covers things for this week. I've been Ian Collin. And I'm still Seth Gecko. And that was this week's gaming news and reviews. This is the AV Podcast. This week, Home Cinema Choice editor Steve May brings us first-hand news from SeaTech in Japan. SeaTech is Japan's top tech show. It's always been an interesting event, but over the last few years it's grown in importance, not only for Japanese AV fans, but as a precursor to the giant CES event which happens in Las Vegas every January. SeaTech is the place to be if you want to see next year's hottest technology first. So naturally I packed my bags and hightailed it over to the Makahari Messe in Tokyo to see what's going to be blowing people away next year. For me, the highlight of the show was Panasonic's mind-blowing 103-inch plasma TV. 
It's not unusual to go to an international tech show and see super large screens, typically from Samsung or LG. But these are not real products, more technology statements designed to secure bragging rights. But Panasonic's giant TV is very much a real product, produced from the same sheet of glass normally reserved for 450 inch screens, it's going to be available to special order in Japan, the US and Europe before the end of the year. It'll cost around 30 grand. A full HD 1080 panel made other giants in the Panasonic range like the brand's latest 65 inch and 58 inch full HD screens look tiny in comparison but its performance was outstanding. Another CTEC highlight for me was the first outing of Toshiba's 55 inch SED screen. SED stands for Surface Conduction Electron Emitter Display is being positioned as a high-end alternative to both plasma and LCD but it's taken some time for Tosh to get the 55 inch version ready. The good news is that it looked fabulous although viewing conditions were strictly controlled. Brown was showing The Last Samurai from HD DVD and the 1080p picture was fabulously sharp with deep blacks. SED sets will go on sale in Japan late 2007. If you think 1080p is the ultimate in high definition, think again. Another high spot of the show was a prototype monitor by Sharp offering 8.84 million pixel resolution. The screen isn't intended for home use, more for professional applications including the film industry and medical research, but it was an incredible viewing experience. Also at the show were the first Blu-ray recorders able to play back BD movie discs from Panasonic and Sony. These are intended for the local Japanese market and have built-in HD satellite and digital terrestrial HD tuners. They look very good, just don't expect to see them outside of Japan anytime soon. Brought to you by AV Forums and AVPlay.com. This is the AV Podcast. Jason Bradbury. As most of you know, when I'm not doing the AV Podcast, I present the Gadget Show on Channel 5 on UK television. And this week has been a particularly interesting one. So on Tuesday, I found myself up to my neck, quite literally, in water, thrown around in the back of a 4x4 uh, and setting some plastic explosive. The reason for this, well, Susie and I, my co-presenter, we were both tasked with the job of testing to destruction a couple of laptops. Susie had the Panasonic Toughbook, which I'm sure most of you will be familiar with, and I had a kind of nameless Toshiba laptop. Uh, but I wasn't testing my actual laptop. I was testing the bag it came in. So it came in one of these bags that uh, on the label says that the bag makes the laptop virtually indestructible. It was quite a nice little bag, relatively small uh, sort of saddle configuration. And um, it had a sleeve inside it that was made of some uh, very tight weave nylon, the same uh, nylon, uh, the manufacturers told us, as used in assault vests by the British Army. So, you know, it bodied quite well. Went through a series of tests uh, underwater, hence the, the dunking. Uh, we threw them around the back of a pickup that we um, uh, span around a field. And believe me, that, you know, that caused some serious vibration. But the best test of all, which I'm afraid I can't give you the result of because my producer on the gadget show would shoot me, uh, was when we put them on plastic explosive. All I'm going to say is that uh, the mushroom cloud apparently was seen by a, a local farmer three miles away. Uh, we had uh, petrol underneath the charge. Obviously, there was an explosives expert doing this, not me and Susie. And the Panasonic Toughbook, I saw it like a projectile. It must have gone 100 feet in the air. Unfortunately, folks, I can't tell you the result because that would preempt 
the Gadget Show, but it's going to be on, on Channel 5, Monday night, 7.15 in a few weeks' time. Um, and then the only other thing to mention is that I had a go on, again, I can't really tell you this, but let me just say, one of the two consoles that are about, that are about to be released uh, this Christmas uh, come New Year. I'm not going to say which one it was. I'm just going to say that a new age of video games has dawned. But don't draw any conclusions. You might, from that from that statement, think you know which of the consoles I'm talking about. There is one console that I think is going to take the world by storm, and I played with it this week, uh, having had a special dispensation from the chairman of the company involved. It was that secretive. They brought it over. They let us use it, and then they flew back again. So um, all I'm going to say is Christmas... 2006 stroke the new year 2007 is going to be very exciting for gamers and finally of course this week was uh, the show uh, in fact I've just watched it go out actually as I've sat and recorded this podcast um, when my life cam project finally hit the air uh, this for those of you familiar with my blog www.jasonbradbury.com will know is my attempt to try and take an image every 30 seconds for a week all right um Essentially, that's 2,880 images a day or over 20,000 images over the week. And, you know, it's quite a mean task. It sounds quite straightforward. It really isn't. I ended up using a mobile phone on the T-Mobile Web and Walk tariff because I found that actually one of the, most, uh, one of the biggest hurdles I faced was the cost of data. And I ended up using a mobile phone with a Symbian operating system, the Nokia N80, uh, no, N70, and some software called TimeSpy, which I got for $10 off the net, and some other software called Shozu, which automatically uh, uploads whatever you snap on your mobile phone to various web uh, albums. I use Flickr for my project. And anyway, it's just gone out on the telly. I sat there with my daughter and my girlfriend watching it. Uh, and in fact, I had the life cam next to the telly recording me watching it, which was kind of a bit big brother. Um, and you can see the results of that on my on my website. There's various links to it. There's a link to the Flickr page in question. So do check it out. And if you do go to my site, just like on the AV forums, don't just visit. Um, leave a comment. Say hello. Okay, that's it for my week in gadgets. Uh, loads more great stuff coming next week. The AV Podcast. Gadget of the Week. Gadget of the Week. So, this week's Gadgets of the Week are actually two Gadgets of the Week. We have the Sony Ericsson W850i and the Sony Vio Blu-ray laptop to discuss this week. And the lucky person who's been playing with them in the office is Seth Gecko. So, Seth, let's take the Sony Ericsson W850i mobile phone. So, how much abuse have you given this handset this week, then? Um, quite a bit, actually. I do like my mobile phones and my gadgets and my gizmo. Now, this is Sony's first slider phone. Now, most people will probably remember the S700, which was a rotating camera phone, and it was rather big, rather chunky. This, however, is a Walkman based phone it still has a camera um, it's 3g so it's actually got two cameras so you can make video calls and it's very small slight compact it's actually smaller than their current fave phone at the moment the k800 and is very similar in shape and size to the samsung e900 now feature wise it's very good you have one gigabyte yep one gigabyte memory stick built into it it also has a radio and the one gig stick is primarily used for you to download 
music to, and so you can listen to your favourite tunes on the move whenever you want, hence the Walkman side of things. So, with it being a Walkman and a one gig memory stick, how, how many tracks are you getting on there then? Well, they say around 240 give or take, which I think might be a little bit ambitious. It all comes down to what you're going to sample as. Um, I've stuck about three albums on it as for a quick test, um, and I've still got plenty of room left. Now, sound quality-wise, I was quite happy with it, but I have a couple of reservations. Um, I do like my music loud. I like my music to be loud rock, specifically, and the volume on this is pretty poor. Um, my iPod is louder, and so is my Arcos for listening to MP3s. And the worst part is you can't connect easily your own headphones. You have to use the ones that are bundled with it. Now that's a major pain in the neck for me because I have a pair of Skull Candy headphones with noise reduction and I can't use them with this particular phone and I can't actually use them with any Sony Ericsson phone unless I buy an adapter which is a real short-sighted move on Sony's part. Brilliant insofar as you get a pair of headphones but they're not particularly comfortable for my ears. So what about usability? The one thing I hate about the Sony Ericsson phones is the user interface uh, is it any better than this model? Now, this is very similar to virtually every other Sony Ericsson outlet, from the Z520s through to the K700s, 750i's, and so on and so forth. Menu-wise, it's very easy. You just press the little button in the middle, which also acts as the play button for the Walkman side of things, and that gives you the 12 menu options on your screen, and you just float around the interface quite easily. You've got easy to use text messaging, easy to use MMS messaging, it's got Bluetooth so you can send your contacts back and forth from your mobile phones. Um, it's a very, very easy to use to get to Group's handset. The camera is only a 2 megapixel camera, unlike the uh, aforementioned K800 which has a 3.2 megapixel camera, but for most people that will probably be enough. But like I said, this is aimed at the music market, hence the Walkman prefix for the phone, and for people who've got this this is to be a commuter phone or something to listen to music while you're on the go so you found a play for a couple of weeks now with that how do you score it well i like it um it's not as good a camera phone as the k800 but then that's not really what this is designed for this is more of an all-in-one kind of phone where you can watch videos you can play your music you've got plenty of memory and oh by the way i've got 3g you can make video calls, you can take pictures and send them on and so on and so forth. So as an all-rounder, it's a very good handset. I would have to say, having hammered it to quite a bit of uh, abuse, I'd give it a solid 8 out of 10. And moving on to the Sony Vio Blu-ray laptop. Obviously this is an expensive bit of kit, so um, give us a quick rundown on the specs for that, will you? Well... We have basically, a, as you say, a, a very expensive item. It, it retails for £2,000. But for your money, what you get is a dual-core 2 gigahertz processor. It has two 100-gig hard drives in it, a gigabyte of memory. It has as much connectivity as you want it to, um, with Blu-ray and Wi-Fi interfaces, several um, USB ports, um, and the big thing is it has a Blu-ray writer in it. Now, the Blu-ray writer will enable you to view movies, indeed that's how I've viewed The Fifth Element. The only negative is it'll only view single-sided discs, you can't actually play dual-layer discs on it. 
If that's a problem to you, well, you're probably looking at movies, generally speaking, on the wrong format. Although Sony are really hyping this up as a, a laptop you can use on the move and watch movies, there's two flawed problems with it. One, the battery life is a couple of hours, so you're only going to be able to just about watch a movie, and as long as it's only a single layer disc, you're fine. For other problem with it is it's heavy. No, it's not heavy. It's damn heavy. It's something like about four kilos in weight. It has a 17-inch screen, and you know you, when you're carrying it. It's more of a replacement desktop unit than a, a laptop. It's far too heavy to transport um, around town, really. Having said that, from a completely different angle, from a spec point of view, you have a very good graphics card in it with a NVIDIA 7600 chipset with its own memory. It doesn't utilize the one gig that's built into the laptop. The screen is absolutely brilliant, however. It's a 17-inch screen, but it can actually show Blu-ray titles at 1080p natively. So from that point of view, it's really good. I could actually watch Fifth Element very easily on the laptop without connecting it to my screen, which is another plus point. It has an HDMI output, so you can easily hook this up to any HDMI HD-based screen. Audio-wise is a bit of an issue, however. It has built-in speakers, but to get the most out of it for Blu-ray titles, you want 5.1, and the only way you can get 5.1 out is via a digital output to your amp which means, unfortunately, you'll only get the Dolby Digital track playing. You wouldn't be able to get the uncompressed version. So all in all, a nicely specced machine, if the price tag isn't just a little bit too high. Well, it depends on how you view it. For the actual spec of the laptop you're getting, and let's let's quickly refresh your memory, it's a dual-core 2 gigahertz processor. It's 1 gig of RAM. It has two 100 gig hard drives in it and you have the Blu-ray writer, and that is the real big thing. The Blu-ray writer, as it stands for a PC, is about £500. So if you take that away from the cost of the laptop, it's pretty much in line with most of Sony's and other companies' laptops for the same spec. So it's not overly priced from that point of view. In terms of as a PC, very nice, very powerful, very fast. Um, I've been running things like Word, bog standard office programs, I've even run Guild Wars, the, uh, a game that I play quite regularly, as everybody probably knows by now. It ran it no problems, and it ran it at the uh, 1900 resolution, which, e which even my current PC can't do because it's a limitation of my monitor. So from that point of view, it's superb. So how would you score this one then? Well, from a laptop point of view, I would have to score it reasonably low, because it's very heavy. It's not carryable. Like I say, it's about 4 kilos in weight. However, if you're looking at it from a point of view that it's a portable machine and is replacing a desktop, and you're going to keep it sat on a desk for a reasonable bulk of the day, and keep it attached to the mains, because like I said, 2 hours on the battery, not that impressive. It's very, very good. From that point of view, and from the spec point of view, I would have to score this a very healthy 8 out of 10. If you're looking at it from a purely laptop point of view, that you're going to be carting it around, um, and you're not going to be chained to a desk and so on and so forth, 4 out of 10, it's too heavy. That's great. Thanks very much, Seth. And a very big thank you to Sony for allowing us to play with those toys for the last couple of weeks. The highest definition. definition. This is the AV Podcast. The AV Podcast Interview of the Week with Phil Hinton. This week we talk to Pioneer's Product Manager, Jim Cathside. In the first of two parts, we talk about Blu-ray and high definition. 
The second part of the interview discussing DVD, AV amps and plasma screens will go out next week. So I started by asking Jim to explain Pioneer's history. I mean, I mean, basically, uh, you know, Pioneer is a company, I don't know, you know how many people out there really appreciate. We're not the largest Japanese manufacturer. We're actually quite a small one. Uh, and they're quite a specialist company. Um, obviously founded back in the, the 1930s by the original founder family, uh, Matsumoto family, the founders of Pioneer, uh, who were always committed to really performance and, uh, you know, started originated making paper cones basically speaker cone manufacturing uh, and had a small factory making paper cones so paper coming in wood coming in for the pulp next to a river you know uh, that's that's how they were founded so um, that's how it's continued to develop really it's always been a specialist company we've never diversed and made cookers or microwaves or anything else we really are an entertainment company uh, and obviously as that diverse got into audio amplification uh, obviously cassette tuners turntables all the things over the years um, particularly uh, got interested and obviously directed and went towards optical disc engineering um, but actually rather than obviously being in bed with Sony and Philips at the time we were doing CD and again they were much bigger than Pioneer Pioneer did get heavily involved in the very very early days with laser disc technology um, both before it went to digital audio when it was just analog as well um, and that was obviously successful in certain markets not so big in Europe although parts of it, it actually became, became fairly dominant uh, towards the end of its life um, and of course in the UK it did pretty well uh, and that development really got them heavily involved then in the audio-visual side of it. Um, and the technologies related to that. You've got to remember at that time, and again, I think it comes up in one of your questions about, about or one of your points in some of the notes that I saw about LaserDisc um, in the UK. You know, a lot of the discs actually in the UK, there were a lot of power discs available, and a lot of them were actually on the Pioneer label, because Pioneer actually had a corporation called the LaserDisc, uh, Pioneer LaserDisc Corporation in Europe, or PLDCE, as we, as we knew it. Uh, and they basically took the licenses from the filmmakers like Universal and Warner and things like that and got the distribution rights to actually produce. And we had our own manufacturing facilities to make laser discs, hence they had a Pioneer logo on them. Uh, although you were buying a Warner title, they had a Pioneer logo on it. And, uh, you know, that's obviously an area of their expertise was the optical disc side. And that, that really went on from there then. Um, obviously, as I've already pointed out, car side's very separate from me, another product manager. And that's, a, again, a very interesting story about the car market grew. But on, on this side of the other side, with the optical disc side that's been so important to Pioneer, uh, not only the, the media, but the engineering and then the capabilities of what you could do with it, it was a logical step that as DVD was developed that we were one of the original eight founder member companies of that technology. Um, you know, a lot of our R&D and all our research was going off into that sphere. Um, and of course, we all know what's happened with DVD, what a tremendous success it's been, how it brought a new level of entertainment into the living room. Um, obviously, at the death of the likes of uh, video formats like uh, VHS tapes as, uh, as well as even Laserdisc. Uh, and it's been great. It's been fantastic. Um, what are Pioneer about? What's the ethos or what's behind Pioneer? I think it really is still. I mean, I've been there, as I say, 15 years. I think it is very much, and it's part of the reason I've stayed, is it's a very... They're actually a very straight, honest company making a straight, honest product in, in one area, if you like, in a niche almost compared to some of our big competitors, um, really believing in entertainment you know, and bringing the best we can to the customer's living room. Uh, that's really what they strive to do. So it's, quite, it's an interesting company to work with. 
So we, sure. we're, we're talking about niche markets there, and obviously we've got Blu-ray and HD DVD on the horizon. Mm. Which, uh, which format will Pioneer be going with? Well, pa- Pioneer are really firmly in the Blu-ray camp, and we have been from day one. I mean, as I say, I've been with the company quite a long time, and I can remember patents being uh, applied and uh, Pioneer working on Blu-ray or Blue laser technology a long way back, as indeed other manufacturers were as well. Um, so Pioneer have always looked at that as the future, then, obviously, the application of that laser technology to a format, well, that's obviously where you then get the HD DVD and the Blu-ray uh, separation. But, no, Pioneer really believe that Blu-ray offers, offers probably the best longevity. Um, obviously, HD DVD would argue that they've got better backward compatibility with DVD, although players will play both. Pioneer believe that, no, the disc offers uh, potential uh, for far greater capacity in the future. Uh, and that really, to go forward, the point of introducing the format now is to go forward with a format that can not only do what we want it to do today with the best that we can do today in terms of video, picture, and sound, but also offer the best opportunities for tomorrow to offer even more than that. And that, that's what we strongly believe Blu-ray does offer, as indeed do a lot of other companies. Companies. I mean, obviously, there's, there's 170 plus uh, member companies in the Blu-ray camp, uh, and a lot of major names are involved in that, both on the PC side and uh, electronics as well as the, the film companies. Um, you know, technology-wise, well, TDK obviously already uh, shown and discussed the uh, potential of a 200 gigabyte disc for the future. But obviously, from a capacity point of view, it's got tremendous uh, opportunities for the future. Uh, and I think that's, that's the exciting bit. And I think that's, again, probably the issue about Pioneer, why they've decided that's the way they want to go. When will your first Blu-ray player be launched and any idea on what the price tag will be? Well, at the moment, I mean, it's a little bit, it's not quite like the DVD player market. It's probably a little bit more like the DVD writer market. I mean, when we, again, remembering that Pioneer are actually a very small company in terms of scale, manufacturing, and even then just financial wealth. You know, some companies are many hundred times bigger than us. The likes of Panasonic, part of the Matsushita family, uh, Sony, etc., are much, much, much bigger companies than Pioneer. Um, so, obviously, they're big companies. They're, they're churning away, getting ready, introducing products in America, and obviously announcements of products in Europe. Pioneer are actually going about it in a very similar way to what we did with DVD writers. We, we have got an expertise. Um, and as I say, I mean, I don't actually manage the uh, PC side of the business, although, ironically, I used to. I used to be in, char- in, in charge of multimedia products as well as consumer. But um, and when we launched the first DVD recorders in the world, domestic DVD recorders on, under the DVD video format, we, did, we actually introduced the first one in Japan in 1999, some way ahead of anybody doing that. But it was only in Japan, and that product was only suitable, really, for Japan in the market at that time. It could never have been rolled out as a worldwide product. And uh, what, we tend, what we did then was we actually were more... Uh, aimed our target more towards the drive market because as a manufacturer, again, obviously people see the Pioneer brand as TVs and videos and, uh, and mini systems, etc. But actually as a manufacturer with manufacturing facilities, we're, we're a core provider of core components, whether it's pickups and drive mechanisms. Uh, and that means that obviously we're well placed to make PC drives. Um, although again, a premium product. I mean, most PC enthusiasts appreciate this as AV enthusiasts. But again, PC enthusiasts, regard Pioneer as making not the cheapest products on the market, and often by far, but in terms of reliability and a product that's 
bulletproof and does what it says in the box. It's got a very, very high regard in the PC market. Uh, and we launched actually a writer drive for DVZ some way before we launched a consumer recorder in the European market. And the same thing's happening here today. Long answer to question, I know, but the same thing's happening here today in that basically uh, you know, we've, just, we've launched already a Blu-ray drive, and it's actually a writer, not just a player, for the PC market. Um, again, it's changed a little bit. Uh, in the early days, DVD recorder drives for PC, we were selling those directly, and you could go into a PC store and buy it. The market's changed a bit, and obviously it's a very aggressive market, the PC industry. And again, that doesn't place Pioneer well on just doing a, a drive on the shelf. There's other companies can churn them out much cheaper than we can. But we do provide products to PC vendors and builders who want a product of that reliability and uh, price tag to go in their own PCs. And we do that across Europe, and that's actually done by a European division, so it's a bit separate. If you had to put a price on it, on the drive, um, around £600, or under £600. Again, we don't actually recommend the retail price on any of our products at all across the board. That's down to the retailers to do that. Um, but the, uh, in terms of a player for our market, and obviously we're not going to see a recorder for some time yet, um, we've obviously announced the fact that we'll buy this fall, as they say in America, or autumn for us. Uh, we'll obviously have an American model, and uh, there's already quite a bit on the internet about that anyway. Um, it's going to be around 1500 US dollars, again, but the market finds its own price. And, uh, you know, that will be you know, quite a highly specified machine, a nice machine. But again, arguably, there'll be cheaper products in the market in America. It's a premium product, it's a premium brand. Uh, Pitch quality looks very good, though. I've had the opportunity to have a play with it, and it looks very good. Europe, um, realistically, next year. I mean, I'm actually I'm not privy, uh, or, or could I tell you exactly when we're going to launch, um, but I understand that our plans are for a worldwide uh, model next year. Uh, price yet to be announced. And that's as a standalone Blu-ray player. As... That'll be a standalone, a standalone Blu-ray player. Probably, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, one advantage with the American model being a little bit before is obviously the American model has got uh, quite nice connectivity, and also we're, we're very impressed with the picture performance uh, from what we've seen so far. Uh, and obviously, now some people at EFRA have had the opportunity to compare other examples of other people, other competitors, players as well. And uh, the Pioneer stands up very well. Uh, I think again, typical of a product from Pioneer that people will look at against the others and just want something a little bit different, a little bit in their view, maybe better, and uh, hopefully they'll buy the Pioneer. But because, uh, as I say, we are a premium brand. We're not a, a run-of-the-mill brand. How do you see the market for, for HD material on disc in the next 12 months? Obviously, there's two formats out there. How do you see it mm. going? I think, again, I mean, it's not for me to comment, you know, again, from the, the, the film company's point of view, uh, or indeed other manufacturers, but I think the market will dictate and the market, market will decide. And I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it will be down to the films and the availability of the content and how good that content is, um, as, it's, as it's dictated as we can assume in the past, you know, whether it's been CD, DVD, and other formats that have come and gone in between those, uh, they've really either lived or <laughs> existed or died uh, based on the, uh, the media that's available and the content that's available. So I think that's going to be the exciting one to watch. Uh, and of course, it's now, it's a much bigger ball game probably ever than before because obviously it mixes in with so many other multimedia platforms for the future. I mean, that's the other exciting thing about Blu-ray, it's not just the video quality and the audio quality, but hopefully, you know, the film industry will, you know, with open arms and hands, as they did with DVD, to be fair, to a large extent, offer the extras and lots of other exciting things that Blu-ray can offer. Um, and we already know it's part of the spec, you know, being able to actually link to the internet if you chose to by connecting the machine up, 
and arguably within the spec the ability to, to launch websites related to material and content, um, you know, updates, maybe uh, go off and do competitions, all sorts of wonderful other things that, again, we're becoming used to now when, even when we just watch the TV and press the red button. Um, and I think, again, that's another reason why Pioneer really believe that Blu-ray is the future. It offers a, a wealth of opportunities and a wealth of different things it's going to be able to do. And I really hope the film industry, and I'm sure they will, will take the opportunity to offer those extras and give people a whole new entertainment experience. So basically, what what you're saying is that it's it's not a case of being first out the gates in in, in this. Then it's it's going to be well, a I, long drawn out. Again, thing. I mean, we can only go on history on that, can't we? Again, talking as an enthusiast in the market because I've been a pioneer product manager. Um, I'm not an engineer. Uh, you know, I come from a I come from a sales background, retail background in this industry, and uh, you know, as an enthusiast of it, I think. It really is down to the content, and it is down to the availability of content. First out the gates doesn't necessarily show us in the past it's the best. Um, nor indeed have the successful ones always been the best. And if you look back at the VHS beta wars, uh, if we've got to talk about wars in that way, um, it wasn't the best one necessarily technically uh, that won. It was really down to dominance of format and availability of content. Um, and I think that as a major part of it, which is obviously out of control in the hands of electronics manufacturers, although some of those obviously are directly related nowadays, a little bit different to uh, the VHS wars. With product uh, starting to appear in the shops, um, mm. obviously Blu-ray is a premium price at the moment when compared mm. to HD DVD. Um, how do you explain to the consumer that, the, the, you know, what the advantage is with Blu-ray? Well, again, I think, again, that will be down to, you know, we're talking about the very early days of a market that I can't really comment on because I'm talking about Europe, I'm not in America. Um, we, we can only sort of surmise about that. I think at the end of the day, the, you know, it will be down to, as it progresses, down to the availability and the type of content that's introduced. And then any clear, you know, advantages with extras and other things that one format might, might offer over the other. Because I'll say that goes hand in hand then with the development of, uh, computer drives uh, for, the, for the product as well uh, and how the PC industry as well take on that new technology and again we firmly believe that Blu-ray offers due to capacity and uh, technical reasons advantages over HD DVD and better longevity for the future which has got to be better for all of us better for the industry and better for the consumer at the end of the day and as I say that's really the ethos again part of the, part of the mentality behind a company like Pioneer do you think that a format war such as this might actually be more damaging than than good? Again, I think you know at the end of the day, anything that can obviously undermine the the, the future for technology and what we do and what we enjoy, uh, it's a shame. But we we've, we've seen these things before, and I think we also I think we've got a habit, and particularly with respect in a way, this is journalism in a way, in a way uh, you know unfortunately wars sell newspapers. And unfortunately, wars also sell technology magazines. Um, and we get very hung up on these things. But we often don't even consider them when we look at other, even technological products, let alone other products that you could draw direct parallels amongst. But for example, you know, the photo digital photographic industry at the moment is obviously booming. And we don't see lots of headlines on the front of the photographic mags about oh, SD wins and beats compact fashion. Uh, nobody's interested. <laughs> It's a digital camera at the end of the day, and you choose the type of media you want to use with it, and you get on with it. I agree, I understand, obviously, there are differences then when you're talking about pre-recorded media, and that's why I point out that at the end of the day, that's going to be reliant upon the film companies to bring out the right titles to, to induce the market and entertain them. Um, you know, uh, 
Good enough answer. <laughs> I, I was speaking to um, sorry. I, I was speaking to Samsung this morning, and mm. um, what they said they they likened it to the the DVD R versus DVD plus R versus DVD minus R, and mm. that both technologies would exist together. Do, do you agree with that? I think it's a good it's a, it's a case in point. I mean, first of all, you know, DVD we don't like calling it minus R. Uh, we never call CD digital audio CD minus digital audio. Um, and plus R and plus RW are obviously a proprietary uh, technology of Philips. At the end of the day, though, it's good for the customer, isn't it? If, uh, if obviously, the products can coexist. And I think in the case of, of DVD recordable formats, it obviously proves that combination players eventually mean that there's no difference between the, the, the formats, effectively. Um, as I say, it remains to be seen. What will happen? I'm just as interested to see as I guess the listeners might be at the end of this. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, as I say, I can only speak on behalf of Pioneer then for why we believe that Blu-ray is the right choice and the way that we should go forward. But it's not just in the hands of Pioneer. It will be in the hands of a lot more than that, which, if either format has to be a successor, is. And indeed, if they don't just coexist, or if indeed one day uh, there's not a combination drive to do that. But as I say, Pioneer have got no direct plans yet to introduce a combi. We're not planning one. We're not discussing that at the moment. Um, I know other companies have commented on the possibility of doing it. I'm not sure whether they exist or not, but you know, the future will see. We'll, we'll see in the future. Pioneer was um, was one of only a handful of companies that, that really supported Laserdisc in the UK, and you, you, you went on to mention some of it in the introduction there. Mm. Um, and your, your players were famous mainly because they allowed PAL and NTSE playback, which meant that, mm. you know, for a small niche market, you could um, import discs from other parts of the globe. Um, where think, the one available. Of all, well, I think you've got to look at that from two points of view. I mean, obviously, that's, that's the way that would be perceived by an AV enthusiast who might be interested in the important discs from America, which obviously back then the die-hard AV enthusiast was, bearing in mind that that was a quite a small in the scheme of uh, a country the size of the UK, a very small minority of the population, extremely small. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I think, again, you've got to consider that, I've, I've explained and mentioned several times, Pioneer are very small. Uh, with a product like that, which we obviously, although we were selling quite nice numbers of them in the UK, again, it was nothing like the amount in, if you looked at a comparison of VHS decks that were being sold at the time recorders uh, against a player. So it's actually a very niche market. And obviously, manufacturing a machine that obviously was PAL and NTSC made a lot of sense, both from a playback point of view and all the electronics that went behind it. Although we did on occasion, we did have PAL-only models. Um, you know, over the years, again, I've you know, been with Pioneer, I've seen them all. But, uh, but by the end of it, and towards the latter days of Laserdisc even, it was becoming very close between, obviously, NTSC discs becoming available against uh, power introduction titles. And I think we've seen those gaps close even more through the life of DVD. Um, and we'll probably, because of the way in which film will be distributed in the future, see the gap close even more with uh, things like Blu-ray. Because obviously, hand-in-hand hand with the technology moving forward, the resolution's improving, the screens to go with that to complement it, um, so is the distribution of film for the cinema. Uh, and, you know, think, sending out hard drive with the content on as opposed to cans of film going around the world and being passed on from cinema chain to cinema chain, uh, to do that digitally now obviously means it can be done much quicker. Um, we've seen a number of titles that have been introduced globally. So... 
Pioneer didn't uh, didn't introduce you know dual standard uh, laserless players purely to um, encourage people to bring discs in from America. Indeed, we supported back then um, you know initiatives from uh, uh, in the UK because obviously there was classification issues about important discs. And uh, you know again, Pioneer, a very honourable company. Uh, we you know we made it very clear that we didn't uh, we didn't want to under, undermine the market, uh, nor were the players available purely to encourage people to import American discs. Uh, that's why we had things like the Pioneer Laser Disc Corporation Europe invested heavily in that in, in getting the interest of Hollywood not only to produce discs for foreign markets but to introduce discs for the European market because it was growing. And to be fair, by the time DVD introduced, was introduced, laser disc had, had grown quite substantially. In France particularly, it was doing very well. Uh, it was growing quite big. It was getting bigger in France than it was in the UK. Um, so now again, I think it will be you know the difference with Blu-ray. Um, what will Blu-ray Blu bring? Well, in a way, I think it will be very similar to uh, DVD in the sense that uh, DVD could obviously have regional coding, which meant they could obviously uh, the, the film industry could still protect their right, their interests, and re release one title in one country. And obviously, all the problems that they've got to go with that is the fact that in Europe, it might be even a different, different distribution company they use in Europe to distribute their films. So obviously, uh, to gear up and to do that globally for some of them is a, is a nightmare. Um, I think, as I say, with Blu-ray, regional coding could be applied. They can still do that if they want to. Uh, I think it'll be interesting, again, to watch and see what happens. Will film companies, as they do more things simultaneously in terms of film release, will they bother with making it regional coding? Will they just bring out the title globally? You know, the latest blockbuster just on a big global launch date, and you can just get it. Um, again, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. But re regional coding, they could continue with that for the future for Blu-ray as well. Tune in for part two of our interview with Pioneer next week. This is the AV Podcast. And that's just about all for this week. We really do value your feedback, so please let us know what you think. You can leave us a post within the podcast forum, or you can email us at podcast at avforums.com. Or why not leave a message on the answer machine? Just dial 0208 123 9587. And don't forget to mark down in your diary that the new AV podcast goes out every week and our new publishing day is a Wednesday. And that brings the 17th AV podcast to a close. This is Jason Bradbury saying thanks for listening, stay subscribed and tell your friends. The AV podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. The audiovisual news was written by John Archer. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV player review team were Chris McAnini, Cass Harlow, Simon Crust and Seth Gecko. The gaming news and reviews were presented by Ian Collin and Seth Gecko. The AV podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Forums podcast is copyright M2M Limited.